Welcome to Season 2, Episode 28 of Bearded, Wholesome, and All Things Baltimore. This is the Season 2 finale. With me today is filmmaker and author about the war on drugs and the CIA involvement in the African-American community, John Potash. How are you doing, sir? Good. It's nice to nice to be with you here, Matt. Absolutely, John. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's, uh, you know... Nice to finally, you know, get to sit down and, and, uh, chat about, you know, some of your, your work over the last decade or so. Thanks. Great. So to kind of kick everything off, um, I know that, you know, I've, I've, I've had a chance to watch some of your work, read, you know, read tidbits of some of your work and, you know, looking at reviews and all that stuff. Um, the word conspiracy is thrown around a lot, but I tend to believe that there's, a bit of truth in every so-called conspiracy theory because some things just aren't coincidental. What really drove you to start your your foray into the world of the CIA and their cover-ups and their involvement in a lot of uh, important historical events? Well, um, I guess it started way back when uh, growing up with my grandfather, who was uh, – into a kind of social justice and activism, but he also, um, at the same time was, um, worked as a defense attorney and, um, would tell me what's going on behind the scenes in, in a lot of ways politically, but also in the Baltimore scene because he, um, represented a, a, a man who was linked to the New York mafia and was, um, good friends with him and just knew what was going on behind the scenes in general in Baltimore. But he also did free work for the NAACP, uh, his entire career. And, um, so he, him and then my father's organizing doctors against the Vietnam War kind of gave me some insight into what was going on behind the scenes so that when I came out of college and started working as an addictions counselor, um, I, and people were telling me that I was counseling, it was, you know, that, oh, you know, the biggest, uh, drug trafficker and, you know, drug dealer in the world is, is the U.S. government. And I didn't know what to believe about that at first, but then I started, like, I was into social activism myself and I started researching some of the stuff they were saying about that. And, um, when I said my father was a Black Panther killed by the police, I started researching Black Panthers. I started, uh, finding out more and more, um, about what was really going on in terms, including, uh, going and hearing speeches by CIA whistleblowers, um, and, uh, like John Stockwell who was in my film, who's a, a, you know, major CIA whistleblower and Phil Agee. And, um, and then, you know, I eventually, of course, um, wrote a, a kind of a article, a major research article about the rapper Tupac Shakur because his, his whole extended family were the leading Black Panthers. And he was actually, you know, a, a serious activist. He was born into activism. And was a national black activist leader before he became a rapper. And so finding all that out, I, uh, got an, uh, an article in this, uh, with CI whistleblower magazine called Covert Action Quarterly started by CI whistleblower Phil Agee. And, um, and after that, uh, his people close to Tupac encouraged me to turn into a book. I had already been writing a book about, uh, that was the basis for drugs as weapons against us, the CIA war on musicians and activists. And I decided that I'd just take out a segment of that book and turn that into an expanded, you know, version of the article I'd written, um, about Tupac and, you know, based on the encouragement from his, uh, business manager, Watani Tayahimba, who was his, uh, longtime political mentor 
and uh, others close to him. Uh, his national lawyer, Chokwe Lumumba, also encouraged me to turn that into a book, the article into a book. And uh, after that book, I got back into the drugs as weapons against this theme. And um, I thought that I could get, if I highlighted these musicians who this affected, you know, Kurt Cobain, um, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix being the main ones, and also some of the Rolling Stones and Janis Joplin, along with the activists in the Black Panthers and the activists in the Students for Democratic Society, kind of the leading anti-Vietnam War group in the country. I thought that um, the musicians would get people interested to learn about this alternative history uh, around these activist groups and the way that um, I think the powers that be use drugs to subvert uh, democracies, subvert people's lives and hurt people's lives so that they couldn't, you know, uh, you know, change society for the better. That's a very interesting thing, you know, to uh, venture into. And I can imagine that, you know, doing your due diligence and your research as a writer and, you know, essentially a journalist, um, was it hard to kind of fact check the CIA whistleblowers to make sure that you weren't publishing anything that was considered fallacy or, uh, treasonous, you know, in, in your community amongst other journalists and reporters. How did you go about doing the fact checking just by not simply taking the CIA whistleblowers at their word after you? Yeah. I tell you, well, a a huge part of my, you know, so I, I document my, my, you know, evidence with over a thousand endnotes and a great majority of those endnotes are mainstream news sources. The problem is uh, places like New York Times or the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun and other places, um, you know, the Atlantic Journal Constitution, for example, they'll publish some very interesting things and then they'll never mention them again. Okay, and so they published incredible, incredible revelations about the CIA's MKUltra program, which is really what my book and film are mostly about is the CIA's MKUltra program. But, um, you know, by the, uh, esteemed journalist Seymour Hirsch, for example. But then they never published, they never talked about that information again, you know, and that's the way they do it. That's the way they, they hide information. They might, you know, get it out at one point when, when so much information is coming out in other ways, they're forced to kind of reveal some stuff, but then they'll, they'll never mention it again. So it's like hidden history, even though they had published it before. Um, so. You know, it's like evidence about uh, JFK's assassination, of course, uh, went that way where there were some revelations in the very beginning, but they were never talked about again. Same thing with Martin Luther King's assassination and, uh, you know, Malcolm X's assassination and Rob, you know, Bobby Kennedy's assassination. These were the, the huge assassinations of these great idealistic leaders of the 60s that were, you know, really evolving people, people that were evolving in their thought processes to just, um, you know, I think represent the grand majority of us, 99% of us to, you know, and we're anti-war and we're just pro-equal rights, civil rights and equal rights. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it's really sad to lose these people, but there's there seems, you know, my basic thesis is from all my work, is that there's this this point oh one percent of people that are the wealthiest of our of our society that have just gained just too much wealth and power 
and they're incredibly prejudiced. My you know, research seem, you know, seems to support they're incredibly prejudiced. Not that they couldn't evolve, but they just haven't evolved, it appears. And, um, and they've tried to do away with any influential leaders that go against their, their racist, pro-war, um, genocidal interests, you know, greedy genocidal interests, sadly enough. And, and it, I can, I do agree with you, uh, not even to a certain extent. I, I mostly agree with you in terms of the government suppressing and, and keeping their neck on the, you know, just a society overall from the standpoint of suppression equals control. And they throw crumbs here and there to us to make the appearance of keeping the, the, the masses happy. But the, the, the influential leaders from the sixties that you, uh, spoke about, they all had positive, uplifting, integrational views that would have done wonders for society in the sixties because it's sad that we're still feeling the, the ramifications of their losses individually and collectively almost 60 years later. And we really haven't come that far as a society in terms of equal rights. You know, I was, I don't speak about it a lot, but I do have conversations with colleagues and friends that it's crazy that in recent history that uh, the rights of the LGBTQ community and the Asian community have made greater strides for acceptance and equality over the rights of African Americans in this country. And it's like they've always been, you know, forgotten about as well, but they've made greater strides and had bills put into place as opposed to black people who are still feeling the systemic racism to this day. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, this George, it's, it's nice. Uh, it's great that everyone, you know, got, uh, upset about George Floyd and protested and tried to change things and they finally got, you know, convictions and all. But there's just, I mean, you know, in Baltimore alone, I thought that I think they saw the statistics were maybe it's Maryland, um, over a hundred unarmed black people have been shot every single year in Baltimore and um you know so Freddie Gray being unarmed and dying in police custody is just one of, of as I say over a hundred of people that have died um in police custody um you know uh so you know really annually um or if they haven't died been seriously hurt by a you know, bullet or you know of course Freddie Gray died from you know, different means but um Nonetheless, it's just, there's just so much of this. And you imagine this is, you know, Baltimore is surely every city USA, you know, it's just the same in every city. Sadly enough, I mean, I really don't know of a city that's much different. Every major city has these issues, has these problems. And so it's systemic, you know, it must be somehow in, in the training of in some way. And not that there's not you know, plenty of good cops. I mean, I'm sure there's, Plenty of good cops, but even in Baltimore, when these good cops are interviewed, they're saying that the, the problem's so uh, pervasive that it's dangerous to be a good cop. Like a New York, I think a New York or New Jersey cop who moved to Baltimore said this: "It was dangerous for me to stay in this force. I had to go back to a small town force or whatever he, he came from exactly, because it was just it was the racism was so systemic. Not the racism, just the corruption was so systemic, and that's why we lost one of our cops. You know, a Suter, Officer Suter." And the best evidence, really, I mean, he was about to to testify against his own cops, 
in a, um, you know, gun task force unit about a corrupt gun task force unit that, that mirrors what I talk about in, um, the FBI war on Tupac Shakur and black leaders, or actually it's the new versions called the FBI war on Tupac Shakur, just state repression of, uh, black leaders. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it's basically, it mirrors what happened in Baltimore with gun, with the gun trace task force, basically and their corruption mirrors what was happening in Los Angeles with the Ramparts unit. And, uh, you know, people have called the Ramparts unit, Ramparts investigation, the, um, the biggest criminal, you know, corruption, uh, trial of New York police in, in LA history. Um, and so, so basically the importance of that in my work is that, um, this corruption unit, this, this, you know, uh, these corrupt cops were part of death row records or involved with death row records. Um, and, uh, you know, plenty of insiders in death row records said they were, you know, they had pictures of them with Shug Knight, they had pictures of them with all these death row cops all the time. And so there was dozens of police officers working at all levels of death row records. And, uh, the high level police detective whistleblower, Russell Poole said, said his, he asked his, uh, superiors about them and, and they told him you can call them troubleshooters or covert agents were their words. Covert agents, of course, is, you know, intelligence agents, undercover intelligence agents. And so, um, you know, what were they doing? Now, Russell Poole's, uh, police documents say they were found to be trafficking drugs, trafficking guns, um, and also, he, Russell Poole found the best evidence is they, they murdered Tupac Shakur. And then they murdered Biggie in order to cover up their murder of Tupac. Now, he didn't know why. He didn't know Tupac's real, you know, full history because it's so covered up by mainstream media. I mean, so few people understand that Tupac was a national black activist leader before he became a rapper. Who knows this? I mean, it's just mentioned in a book or two. But they don't detail what it really means. I mean, this was a the New African Panthers were active in eight to ten cities around the country, and Tupac was their youngest ever, you know, elected national chairman. He was, and I have an interview of him, you know, during that time in my film, and because he was uh, he was just such a brilliant guy. That's why he was the youngest ever elected national chairman. Um, but he kind of hid that brilliance behind this gangster facade. Um, which was developed with his um, imprisoned stepfather, Matulu Shakur, um, because he was only used his Black Panther extended family were trying to get the Bloods and Crips to call peace truces and stop fighting each other and instead uh, get involved in activism. And it was after some particularly brutal police murders of uh, some some unarmed uh, uh, Bloods or Crips gang members at the time. And um, and so they they were successful at starting that peace truce movement. Tupac got involved and started introducing, you know, Bloods and Crips leaders at peace truce picnics and got them to sign a document that he had come up with, with his, you know, imprisoned stepfather, Matulu Shakur called the, the code of thug life, which was basically trying to get them to stop, um, the stop so much violence, stop hurting their communities so much and, you know, stop dealing drugs anywhere near, you know, schools or kids or anything like that, and trying to stop them from drug dealing altogether and turn on to, you know, legal businesses. And he was successful with a number of gangs in getting them to do that, but it spread throughout the country, this gang peace truce movement. 
And that was a huge threat. Um, now, Tupac took on this fake gangster persona in order to appeal to gangs more and politicize them that way. But it's not who he really was. He was really uh, just a brilliant uh, intellectual guy who uh, studied, you know, um, theater and dance at the Baltimore School for the Arts. He studied Shakespeare and studied, you know, he turned, he rewrote Shakespeare plays into modern language and, and um, you know, produced and directed them and starred in them. I mean, that's that's how how talented he was um, from his teen years onwards. So um, he, uh, you know, he just was misunderstood that way. And, you know, sadly, it was partly his own doing was probably the way the mainstream media just focused on, tried to focus on the most negative aspects of this, you know, of his persona. And uh, the way they also, um, sadly, I, I believe I show the evidence that they, they um, kind of, misreported what happened with his um you know supposed rape trial it was really just touching a woman's butt against her will who he already had consensual sex with and he got one and a half to four and a half years in jail and solid you know for that charge it's unbelievable you know can you imagine you know you said consent the jury rules you said consensual sex with this woman and but you touched her butt against her will you know i mean how do you even have sex with a woman but anyway the point is she admitted that she uh you know, had given, had kissed his penis on a dance floor. And, um, it's just, it's just an incredible, you know, frame up that they, they tried Tupac and were successful with. Um, and so, uh, 10 months of those 11 months of that time were in solitary confinement, um, before he, you know, uh, got out on bail. And so nonetheless, this is, you know, before the, uh, I show the evidence, of course, of the U.S. intelligence orchestration of his murder. But there was actually about five or six attempts by U.S. intelligence before his actual murder. And, uh, you know, top reporters like Kathy Scott, Las Vegas Sun, you know, crime award winning crime reporter Kathy Scott says the FBI was in the, the motorcade behind Tupac, you know, watching his, his, at least watching his, you know, murder. And so, you know, it's just loads of evidence of, of their involvement, but nonetheless, um, you know, I think that the, he's just one of several examples, you know, the others being, of course, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, and, um, uh, Kurt Cobain's a more controversial one, but we'll talk about that if you want to. And, um, and all that. I would actually like to, uh, talk about that because I'm not very well informed on it. Uh, Kurt Cobain, uh, tragically passed away in my youth. Um, so, I, everybody kind of has a, a history or at least somewhat of a, of, of knowledge of Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon. Where does Kurt Cobain tie into all this? Well, Kurt Cobain had said that, um, you know, uh, like when, when he, when they, he first was asked to appear on the cover of Rolling Stone, he, he, uh, had, he said, I only be on the cover if I can wear a shirt that says corporate magazines, corporate media still sucks or corporate magazines still suck. Um, so he was really in tune with the fact of that the mainstream media is controlled and, you know, it's hard to get, uh, anti-war messages out in mainstream media. It's hard to get, you know, civil rights messages out. I mean, it hit in his time, you know, this, the, people didn't really know as much about the huge pervasiveness of, of racism and police brutality in the 1990s, the way he, you know, put it out there in 1991 or so, you know. And so he was talking about the racism and the, you know, um, the pro-war stance of media early on in the, you know, 1991 and all. 
And so he was really getting some interesting messages out there at a time when, when other musicians really, you know, weren't as much. Now, of course, Rage Against the Machine came on stronger in 1992 or three and, and, uh, they started saying even more radical stuff, but Cobain was way out there. And even in, in a biography of uh, Nirvana, um, they said that when the, he wanted to put on the cover of Nevermind, all kinds of, um, radical messages like anarchistic essays and, how to build your own bomb, and and so he, he was very radical that way. I'm not saying it's good for people to be building their own bomb, but that's just the, the stance he took against the government at the time because of all the he was very anti-war and he thought that we were too pro-war. We were bombing too many countries, invading too many countries. And he was he was very pro women's rights, very pro you know very um, pro abortion rights in terms of just reproductive rights and you know, stood up for gay rights and all kinds of different issues that most, you know, most people didn't talk about. And here he was number one, you know, most arguably the most influential guy in the world by the time, at the time of his death being the best selling and most, you know, beloved musician at the time of his death. You know, I, that's, it's, you know, interesting that you were able to put the pieces together and, and and kind of see that he had you know that message that he was trying to put out to everybody in the world and i can agree with you at the time of his death you know from what i do know he was very influential and the details surrounding his death are um questionable to put it mildly uh being as though in my profession i handle a shotgun uh on occasion for a living yeah. uh I, I just don't know how you commit suicide with a shotgun, re- regardless if it's sawed off or not. It's just, there's a lot of variables there. And then people it's wanted to, people wanted to point at Courtney and I don't believe that she did because she absolutely adored him and was in love with him. And that was her husband and all that. But, uh, I'd, I'll tell you, it, she's a, uh, she's an interesting piece, uh, interesting human being. Uh, I have a whole chapter just on her because there's something really far, far gone on her that I couldn't get into in the, in the film as much. I had to get into in the book in detail because it's, but basically I'll say, first of all, um, the, the president of the, uh, you know, forensic pathologist association, uh, Cyril Wecht has been on all major news channels, you know, giving his expert opinion on all kinds of things. He was, in, he was, he was the man, the character in the film, uh, concussion who supervised the uh, doctor that came, that real, you know, I mean, what was that film called? I think it was called concussion anyway, about the, you know, football players concussion. Yeah. And stuff. yeah he's the one that, that helped that doctor that, that found the CTE and all that, and, you know, that's causing football players, all kinds of problems, brain problems from concussions. And um, anyway, so he's, he's incredible pathologist. He's in his eighties. He's still doing great work. And he said that he believed that Kirk Cobain's, um, death was a suicide made i mean it was a murder made to look like a suicide that was his you know conclusion after studying all the evidence um and so now granted there's a film called soaked in bleach that goes through a uh detective's investigation of it all and this detective was a former police officer you know police detective murder detective turned private detective who was hired by courtney love to find kirk cobain and he ends up finding incredible amounts of evidence that she was actually involved, believe it or not. Wow. That she was involved in, in her husband's uh, murder. And some of that evidence um, 
is the fact that now the film doesn't even go into this evidence, but the fact that um, Eldon Hoke, a musician, a Los Angeles musician, said that uh, Courtney Love came to his, you know, rock shop where he worked, the music shop where he worked, and uh, offered him 50 grand to kill Kurt Cobain. And uh, his store owner overheard it, and so he, you know, he kind of testified that, yeah, she did come in and, and was talking to him about something like this. And uh, when she came back to uh, give him the money to follow through, because he was ta- he was an alcoholic who needed money badly, and he was going to take the job actually. Um, and he's caught he's on tape saying all this when uh, Nick Broomfield's uh, BBC, BBC produced film, Court, you know, Kurt and Courtney. He says that um, when she came back, he what he was actually on tour with his band, and uh, so so but he knows that his friend. Um, Alan, uh, and they started to say last name and just called himself. He says, I'll the FBI catch him. Um, but took the money and followed through with the job. Okay. And so, and he actually said the name, man's name, Alan Wrench, for another reporter on tape. And, um, but when he said this on film, several days later, he ended up dead. And the last person with him was Alan Wrench. Okay. And, um, you know, this guy, Alan Hoke. So, um, this is just some of the massive evidence against that Courtney Love had something to do with it. Courtney, you know, there's uh, this private detective has uh, Kurt and Courtney's lawyer, um, Rosemary Carroll, on tape, and this is my film too, but saying that he was, they were getting divorced. Um, you know, he was divorcing Courtney at the time, and they had a prenuptial agreement, so she was, you know, cut out as well. Um, her, her history is, um, she was getting counseling at the either age of two, three, or four years old onwards, okay? Now, that's a bizarre age to start counseling. I've never had a client as young as two, three, or four years old. That's just totally bizarre to me. Nonetheless, okay, maybe it does happen. But, um, the issue is she told her father, um, that um her mother kind of like was wasn't married to her father her mother won the rights to her and took it away took her away from her father at an early age her father said he went to a deep depression and at 13 years old he got a letter from from courtney love who was in a juvenile detention institution uh, facility and she said um you know i've you know all my counselors and therapists have been having sex with me since i was i was a little kid and uh they they had me taking all these drugs and she starts naming all these MK ultra psychohypnotic drugs that they use to create um you know um basically uh dissociative identity disorder which used to be called multiple personality disorder and um so we're talking about like two and all and and uh I think it was second alls I forget for all the names of these different drugs but nonetheless so these are some of the drugs that they use, like, uh, with Sirhan Sirhan too, I believe, according to experts that he just got released from prison and his, and, and all the, the top, like, Harvard Medical School, the expert doctor on hypnosis says, sir, I studied Sirhan Sirhan for 500 hours and he was hypnotized to do what he did. Somebody hypnotized him to carry out what he did with the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Um, and so, you know, this is what seems to have happened with Courtney. Like she was, Somehow, um, you know, by the time she was 15 years old, according to biographies, she was already prostituting. Like, you know, uh, her dad told me personally, and you know, in, in talks I had with him about his book on, on his daughter, that um, she was, you know, uh, 
doing doing IV drugs, you know, in her teenage years, like 15 years old or so, um, leaving needles around his basement. He had to kick her out of the house because she was prostituting and leaving needles around his house. He couldn't, you know, he had gotten her out of the hot, uh, juvenile detention facility, but realized that she, you know, she had become a monster while he was away from her. And um, so it's uh, really a, a bizarre story. Um, and she was very, she happened to be, she said um, when her first husband was scared to death of her, she's her first husband um, was a, a top L.A. punk musician. I forget his name, James Moreland, I think his name was at the time. And this is, we're talking about the late 80s now. Um, and she, and he said he was scared to death of her. He thought he was marrying this like punk feminist. And it turns out she he said she was like a right wing Phyllis Diller. She said, um, she is up with generals in Alaska and, uh, they told her, you know, these, why these wars, all these wars are good for us. And, uh, you know, this anti-war stuff is just crap, you know, and that's the way she was, her attitude. And so here she is, she marries, you know, Kurt Cobain, who was very different than her that way. And it sounds like, and she got him using heroin daily for the first time. He had never used heroin daily. He had this massive stomach problem that caused, caused him to try it about, he said, a handful of times, about four or five times total in his life. But then she got him using it daily. And all, all these, all the witnesses to, you know, them, friends of theirs said that. I mean, at least I quote one or two from the scene that say that directly. And she said she did that to control him. And, um, but, uh, then when he was divorcing her, you know, um, you know, she took other steps. Now the thing is, why would she do all this? And the best evidence is that she had, she was, she was being manipulated. Um, whether she was fully dissociative identity disorder or whether she was just being manipulated or just working or who knows what, how much she knew about it all. But nonetheless, I, you know, the, the powers that be, obviously hid his you know that the all this huge amount of evidence that he was murdered for years and here's this uh former los angeles you know police detective turned investigative you know uh, private detective um you know tom uh his last name all of a sudden but um who uh is is going to his police department saying i have this huge amount of evidence that cobain's murdered you know you gotta look into this and then he went to Seattle Police Department. I have this huge amount of evidence that Cobain's murdered, and they and you got to look into this. And they all completely just brushed him off. Now, how? Why would a, a fellow, you know, a guy who's trained in in finding evidence, if he brings tons of evidence to you, why would you just blow him off unless your superiors are telling you to? You know. So that's just some of the massive evidence I have around the, that case. That's yeah. incredible. A lot of this I never really knew, and uh. I appreciate you elaborating on that. And uh, to kind of move forward a little bit, I wanted to ask you a question with your research and, and your, and your uh, foray into the book writing and the filmmaking and the cover-ups and the government's involvement in drugs and the, you know, the war on America pretty much um, with your professional life, seeing it at the bare bones, you know, um, rock bottom type of situation for your, you know, clients. How did everything tie in? Do you, the, is it interesting that you do all these books and, and articles and movies and then you see the effects on the common person professionally 
throughout the course of your career? Yeah, well, I got hints of, of all these. I got hints of these things from some of my clients and some of my coworkers who were counselors. Um, and, uh, and then I do my research and then I'd hear, and then I'd, I happen to ask just a question or two. For example, I remember, um, I can't remember how long ago exactly it was. I'm guessing, um, five or six years ago, I'd, uh, you know, already written my book. I already come out with my book in 2015, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And, um, and, uh, part one or two chapters of my book, or a few chapters, I should say, at least, talk about a group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And, uh, that was Timothy Leary's first group. I don't know if you know Professor Timothy Leary from Harvard, who was kicked out of Harvard with some other professors who were kind of manipulated into promoting acid. But then he actually admitted, eventually admitted that he was a winning agent of the CIA since 1963, I believe he said. Um, and, um, and so he starts this national group, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was the largest, uh, acid distribution group in the country. And, uh, the, the person who financed him were, the two people who financed him were a billion piggy Mellon Hitchcock. And the Mellon Bank, you've heard Mellon Bank, I'm sure, but, uh, the Mellons and the Hitchcock families were, uh, owned golf oil, um, you know, and they were just, they had, uh, people, they had family members at all levels of U.S. intelligence at different times in history. And so he, um, these two were financing this huge acid trafficking group that became worldwide. And the, the biggest, member of that group actually became a guy named Ronald Stark who admitted to an Italian judge that he had been working for the U.S. intelligence since 1960. And, uh, the judge let him out after the, um, one of the first people working on the case was, was found dead. Um, but nonetheless, it's, um, so this, I, so I asked, I thought the brotherhood, brotherhood of eternal love, um, had kind of gone, died away in the 1970s. But one of my, client said he was you know a, a part of a national LSD trafficking ring in the 1980s and early 90s and uh and I just said was it the brotherhood of eternal love and he just like like was taken aback like how'd you know that you know like where'd you where'd you hear that Wait, who were you you know like he was really taken aback by it but he said yeah that that's that's that was our group yes and so he was probably, you know, a lower level guy who just didn't realize how, you know, what it all was. Um, but this best evidence, of course, is that it was U.S. intelligence was the largest, you know, acid manufacturer in the world. And, um, you know, for, for decades and probably still is. So yeah, that's, that's what seems to be going on. And I, I argue they do that to, to hurt our, our minds so we can't change society for the better. You know, uh, because we're going up against these incredibly wealthy, powerful forces that are making so much money off these wars with all their, you know, defense contracting companies. And they're just, uh, taking over lands that have resources that we want oil, you know, um, lithium, other things, other resources we want and, uh, making up, sadly enough, I, I can only, I, the best evidence I found is that they make up reasons why we're pretending to, promote democracy while taking out leaders, assassinating leaders, you know, that seem to be like have national health care and have, um, you know, free, you know, incredibly cheap colleges, 
while we have no national health care and very expensive colleges. So <laughs> so how bad are they really to their people if, if they're doing these things like that? You know, and we aren't. I, I I can only imagine, you know, the 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 overall work that you had to put in to come to these conclusions and to do your due diligence and the fact that both of your worlds, both professionally and privately, just not well, not privately, but more so publicly on the journalism aspect just collided and you were able to see so many different levels of the operation down to its core to where people that are affected by it, people that knew about it. And then for you to also interview people that had more intimate knowledge of it over the years, um, that's truly an incredible thing to do. And it gives precedence and um, an overall more compelling truth to the information that you put out. And it's not just, somebody creating a bunch of conspiracy theories there's levels to it and in order for you or in order for somebody like myself to understand it you have to read the book do the research watch the movies and then independently fact check and think and formulate these ideas on your own it's it's amazing that you were able to get this type of information from many different facets of your life and use the resources available to put it to paper and put it to video. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for saying that. Before I let you go, uh, I wanted to ask you one final question. Um, being as though that you have been involved in the activist field for uh, equal rights throughout your life and you've been a proponent for it, um, have you received any type of backlash because you are uh, a white man advocating for uh, a whole race of individuals that have been suppressed for such a long time. Has there been any type of, not necessarily criticism because everybody has criticism, but has there been a backlash to where you've had to kind of fall back on your beliefs or have you just still gone balls to the wall regardless for the equal rights and the, and the, uh, forward movement of our society? Well, um, it's it's interesting, you know, uh, the person who's been my who was my biggest proponent in Baltimore, um, very good uh, activist who happens to be a, a radio host too, Darren brother Darren Muhammad, is uh, was interesting when he said that he uh, when he first came across my book um, or like someone told him about my book, he said, oh no, I can't believe you know, this white guy could really you know cover. Tupac and black leaders, you know, and talk about anything, you know, important. And he said, came across the second time someone told him about it. He saw it somewhere in, um, maybe in, uh, everyone's place, um, which is a black, uh, black bookstore on, uh, North Avenue, great bookstore. Um, he says he still couldn't believe it. He saw it again, but he thought, nah, this is, this can't be, there can't be much to this. And then he said, finally, um, this, this man named, um, Jeez, oh, I just forgot his name. Arnold Mitchell is a great uh, karate instructor. He's like a kind of really known karate instructor in um, in, in Baltimore, who my wife uh, had for that ten years. Um, he sent him my book, and he said, "Oh my God, that Arnold Mitchell is reading, you know, is recommending this book. Um, I guess I'll I guess I'll read it after all." 
Um, and so, you know, it's like people had a hard time believing that a white person could cover this kind of stuff and cover it well. And, um, and then he, he, he proceeded to have me, um, in many forms, present in many forms with, uh, Fred Hampton Jr., for example, and with, um, a lot of different other people in, in many places involved. And we had, had me on his radio show three or four or five times. Um, and so he was a great proponent for my work. And, um, so, you know, it's just like, yeah, people do have a hard time, you know, sometimes believing that, you know, and I don't blame them. I, I understand that, you know, like, okay, how can a white guy really, what, what's his reasoning even for going this far with it? And I just think because, uh, just so happened that, you know, these, these activists just shared my activist ideals. That's all, you know, they shared. And so I, I was in, interested in, in them and, and, um, and wanted to put it across the same way I think a, a black writer could do a great work when the Kennedys, if you, you know, um, I wouldn't, you know, dismiss that, but it's, you know, it's, it's just understand what that ha- it does happen. And, but there's also the aspect of, um, they're infiltrated, you know, I mean, all, all activist groups are infiltrated. So you get, you get the backlash that's also like, you don't know where exactly, what exactly is going on with someone's intent, real true intentions. So there, the, the Black Panthers are, are heavily infiltrated and there's some people that, uh, their kind of backlash, I, I, you know, it makes me wonder who they really care about, if they care about the Panthers or if they're working for someone else, you know. So I do get that too. And, um, but really the, the biggest backlash I've gotten is from the New York Police Department who, um, when we, we lived in New York, um, up until 2007 and I started putting out, um, my own version, like Kinko's bound versions of my Tupac book, the FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders in 2006 to Black Panthers at different, uh, political gatherings, like activist rallies or gatherings or, you know, meetings, get conventions or whatever, you know, for free, freeing Mumia, Abu Jamal or whatever, different other kind of things, events. And, um, and by when we moved here back to Baltimore, when I moved back to Baltimore in 2007, I got my wife to move from New York to Baltimore. Um, we were having problems with our phone, uh, for a number of years. Like there was different issues that would come up for our phone. And finally, um, in 2000, God, it was 14, 15, 16. Um, after I came out with my drugs as weapons against this book, um, she called the phone company and you know, she would go for hours with the phone company trying to figure out what's, what the problems are. And, uh, they said, well, we got your backup email and it's, um, you know, blank, 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 NYPD and dot whatever, you know, something like that. And we're like, what? And she's like, what? And she got the email. It's an NYPD email, New York police department email. And that's our backup email on our phone. And, um, it's no wonder I've been having so many problems with my phone. You know, they would, my phone would hang up on me in the middle of an interview with like a radio program, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so things would happen like that to me. And so they were, it's hard to believe that they started, you know, um, you know, invest, you know, doing this kind of stuff to me even before I officially came out with my Tupac book in 2000, fall of 2007, when I was in Baltimore, I, I officially came out with my book in, a, in its perfect bound paperback form, you know, uh, in the FBI war and Tupac Shakur and black leaders. 
So, and it was a Baltimore distributor that got me to put it out that way, uh, called the, um, uh, African world, um, books. Um, a guy down in Baltimore city does great work with, uh, distribution to African bookstores, African world books. And so he got me to make into a perfect paper bound paperback, um, that way. And, uh, now it's out in a new way with a group called microcosm publishing, um, that, you know, called the FBI war on Tupac Shakur. Um, but it's um it's just uh, incredible how they were covering me from they were messing with me back before I even had the perfect bound book out you know that's that's that is insane i would never in a million years think that a police department had that kind of uh reach to go through a phone company to keep tabs on somebody so that's that's incredible that means you were making waves in the, in the right kind of way and you were ruffling the feathers of some uh, more oh. highly positioned folks yeah. in in the area in which you were in. And, uh, you know, I do believe that you're doing good work. I, I myself, um, just, you know, in my professional setting, I see a lot of the systemic uh, racism going on. And I, I do, I do uh, try to, convey my message to anybody whether it's an offender or an officer um i can only do my part and yeah. that is to uh not sympathize but empathize and just do better for myself and to set an example for my daughter and the next generation of people to where hopefully one day we can have an impact on the uh systemic racism that's in place and yeah. uh I try to not virtue signal because I believe that is uh, a very phony part of this whole situation. So I don't act like I can, you know, cause I don't act like I've ever been through the things that an African-American person has been through. And, you know, just to kind of correlate what you do, I can only do my part and just speak up when needed to, you know, when, when I feel the need to and just to make sure things are done equally and your work you know, professionally and beyond in the public eye has been uh, a very enlightening, you know, thing to, you know, learn on my end. And I appreciate you coming on the show, John. I appreciate your time. And uh, before you go, you can plug your book, let people know where they can purchase your book and and your movie, where it's streamed and all that. And uh, any other things you're potentially working on. Thanks a lot, Matt. Well, so the, uh, the first book um is been newly released in um November called The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders and it's about the state repression of black leaders from the sixties to the nineties and you know, centered around the Shakurs, but also touching on Martha King's assassination and a chapter on that and chapter on Malcolm X and, and the Black Panthers, et cetera. But then the uh the next work was that came out in two thousand fifteen is Drugs as Weapons Against Us, and it's got a really long subtitle, but it's basically the CIA war on musicians and activists. And then my film came out in uh, 2019, which you can see, um, you can either purchase on Amazon or see for free when a number of plat, um, I'm sorry, see for free on Amazon Prime. I think it's got a few days left on Amazon Prime, but um, it's for free on Tubi. You can see on uh, Tubi for free, though it's got like every 10 minutes, it's got one or two ads. But um, 
So uh, those are all my works that are out there right now. And um, you can pick up uh, the FBI War on Tupac Score, and Black, um, FBI War on Tupac Score at Barnes & Noble in Pikesville. Um, and uh, and then they have it there. They actually have an autographed copy there. But um, I, I guess the um, the new works I'm working on are I just did a I just did a movie review of Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited for Covert Action magazine, and I'm working on a review of RFK Jr.'s book about the the pandemic, or he would probably you know call it a pandemic. Sadly enough. But um, he does incredible work, RFK Jr., in line with his Kennedy family, um, I think. Um, yeah, I think he's just smeared by the media, sadly, because he's a brilliant man. He's done incredible work at saving the environment, too. Um, you know, uh, and my, I'm actually supposed to get, you know, I'm, I've been in negotiation. I'm supposed to finalize a contract on turning drugs as weapons against us into a scripted series. But uh, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Hopefully it's going to happen. I'm just, you know, we'll see if it actually does happen with a, a brand new network. That's you know, just like a Roku kind of network, but it's a brand new network. And um, and the final thing is I have a film uh, about the current COVID situation and, um, and a kind of a, you know, a different version of what's really going on. And tracing it back to eugenics in the early 1900s to now. And, um, yeah, so hopefully that gets out soon enough. We'll see if that does. Um, it's called eugenics. To, it's like, I can't tell the whole title of the film, but it's basically about eugenics, the pandemics. And, um, we'll see, uh, how, you know, we hope we get that out soon. It's done. And it's just a matter of, um, I'm in negotiations with a, a certain, you know, different places to show that film. We'll see. Well, I hope that everything that you're working on comes to fruition, John, and I wanted to thank you for coming on the show again. Uh, have a happy holidays, and I hope you and the family stay safe. Thanks, man. If anyone wants to communicate with me, it's at johnpotash.com, john, P-O-T-A-S-H.com, and um, so they can either buy, buy my work or communicate with me through there. Send me an email through there, okay? Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Bye.